This is chapter 169 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, it's part two of our holiday gift guide. And this week, we're featuring a book for wannabe astronauts, as well as a biography of one of baseball's all-time star players. Astronaut Krista McAuliffe once said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that space is our new frontier and that it's everybody's business to know about it. The new National Geographic Kids Space Encyclopedia seeks to do just that for those younger, curious minds. I spoke with the book's author and illustrator, David Aguilar, who also happens to be the former director of science information and public outreach at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. It's safe to say you know a thing or two about space. What is it about the moon and the stars that just captivates children? It's different than daytime. And there's so much possibility. The idea that there may be life out there, the idea that with a small telescope, you can explore these things yourself. Uh, it, it, it's a new land that, I, I, to me, has always fascinated me. Now, astronomy and astrophysics, they're a difficult subject even for you know some smart adults to wrap their heads around. But this book is so approachable. You know, even with that kid joke or two sprinkled in, how difficult was it to, like, really boil down this stuff to its essence? It was a challenge. But then again, uh, what I do, this this I've written 12 different books for Nat Geo, National Geographic. And for me, I think as a kid, I, I'm a kid when I'm writing these. And, and what fascinates me, the wonder that is out there, I, I slipped back to a time period that everything was wondrous. So that's how I do it. I love that there is a whole section dedicated to Are We Alone? Yes, it's a big question, isn't it? And I think, you know, for some people, I know for me as a kid, that was sort of my gateway into being curious about space, like aliens and UFOs and all those kinds of crazy stories you hear. You, you, it gets you wondering and gets you interested in wanting to know more. Well, Lisa, I agree, and, and I would have to say that's exactly why I got interested in astronomy. I used to look at my all my grandmother's old uh, life magazines with stories about UFOs and aliens, and I was just dumbstruck by the possibility that they might be out there and all the science fiction movies I went to. I loved it, and, and that really drew me into the topic. And you look ahead to the future as well in the book, and you really end up talking about things that, you know, kids are reading the book now might help come true. Well, we've laid the groundwork for these discoveries. We know that they're ahead. For instance, I will say that any child that is alive today will probably know within the next 20 years whether or not there's life in the universe and where it is. We've narrowed that search down to other Earth-like planets out there. So we're moving ahead, and these are big questions, but we are poised to answer them. How do we keep kids interested in science long enough to allow them to pursue uh, STEM careers? I would say stop the memorization and get them involved with their hands, with their feet, with their eyes, with their imaginations. I think sometimes wandering along a creek, you'll learn more about science than than you might hearing a lecture. It's, it's, It's all around us. Science incorporates and nature incorporates everything of who we are, why we're here, how we exist. There, I would say take a walk. 
Turn rocks over. Go into a tide pool. Turn things over and look and see what wiggles out and swims away. All of that is science, and it is so fascinating. I have a really funny story to share with you. My nephew, who's six, is really interested in outer space. He got a telescope for his birthday, and he called mm-hmm. his grandmother really, really excited because he looked at the moon through the telescope for the first time, and he said, Grandma, Grandma, I saw the American flag on the moon through my telescope. <laughs> and, Probably not, but I love its imagination. Exactly. And I guess, you know, that's that's really, you don't want to tell this kid, no, sorry, but you also don't want to quash that curiosity and that thrill of, of, of learning and discovery, right? Absolutely not. Uh, encourage them to go further. And uh, I'm so pleased that he picked up a little telescope and has begun exploring the the stars and the universe themselves. It's, it's a wonderful adventure. Before I let you go, I know there's something spectacular and rare that's happening later this month. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. On the 23rd of December, uh, the two planets, Jupiter and Saturn, excuse me, it's on the 21st, Jupiter and Saturn are going to almost touch. They're going to come together. Now, they are separated by millions of miles between them, but both of them are coming together. And this is what's really cool, and especially with somebody with a telescope. For the only time in your life, because it hasn't occurred in 800 years, and we're going to have to wait another 400 for it to happen again, if you looked at Jupiter very bright in the western sky at sunset, the brightest star-like object, if you looked at that with your telescope, you would see both Jupiter and Saturn in the same field of view. It's going to be beautiful. And will it only be on that one day? That's when they'll be closest. Will we be able to see it for, uh, like a few days before or a few days after? Oh, they'll, if they'll know, well, you might, but they'll be coming close together. And on that evening, they will almost touch and then they'll separate and move further apart. And what's interesting is we think the star of Bethlehem may have been actually something very similar to this when the planet Venus, which is in the morning sky, brilliant this morning, and the planet Jupiter came together and they would have hung in the sky right over Bethlehem at sunset. We think that may have been the star of Bethlehem. That's very cool. And I'm going to have to call my nephew so just be just before dinner or just at dinner time, even as the sky is starting to get dark, point his telescope in the west towards Jupiter. You'll see it. It's big and bright. You can't miss it. And in the eyepiece, there'll be Saturn sitting right next to it. We've been talking with David Aguilar. The new book is the National Geographic Kids Space Encyclopedia. Your enthusiasm for this subject just comes through the phone line and hopefully, you know, we can get people, other people really excited about this and sharing this with the the younger generation. I hope so, too, because the universe holds so many mysteries, but so many wonderful discoveries yet to be made by all the young people that are out there that uh, question things and want to learn and want to grow. If you have a baseball fan or two in your life, particularly a Mets fan, the new Tom Seaver biography from acclaimed sports writer Bill Madden is sure to please this year. Madden established a long-lasting friendship with Seaver later in his baseball career. The result is a vivid and deeply personal look at the life of the legendary pitcher known to everyone as Tom Terrific. Our Peter Haskell spoke with Madden about Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Bill, I, I wanted to start at the end of the story. 
Tom Seaver died August 31st after living with dementia. Tell us about your your last visit with him at his winery in California. Uh, yes, I was out there and I was out there both in 2016 and 2017 working on a documentary on him. And uh, the last time was 2017. And I have to say, in the one-year decline of his memory issues and everything else with the, the condition that he had, it was a result of Lyme disease that had come back after 30 years. It was dramatic. Uh, in 2017, he, he couldn't remember most of the details of his career, and in particular his 300th win at Yankee Stadium in uh, 1985 and uh, so it was it was troubling for me to see my friend who was such a brilliant guy I mean he was the smartest player I ever I ever covered without any question and um, I'm looking at this guy and I'm seeing the decline of a beautiful mind his second career was winemaking and winemaking and baseball are very different kinds of pursuits but what are the qualities you saw that made him successful in both of them? Well, one thing about Tom Seaver, uh, he, this is a guy who always had a plan. From the beginning of his life when he was in high school, uh, his, his first plan was he was going to get a college scholarship for baseball. Uh, only when that didn't work out, because he was, he was actually too small, uh, <laughs> He was the smallest player on his team in Little League and the smallest player on his team in high school. And even though he was the best pitcher on the team, he didn't have that blazing fastball to uh, attract the recruiters of the big-time colleges. And his plan back then was to eventually pitch at Southern Cal University for Rod Dato, the legendary coach there. But no scholarship offers were forthcoming in his senior year because of his size, I assume, and he said to his parents, I am not going to go to college on your dime. If I can't get in there on my own athletic ability, then I'm going to have to figure out something else to do. So his plan was temporarily detoured, and it was Vietnam time back in, we're talking about the early 60s now, and he knew he had to, that something else he had to do uh, could be interrupted by being drafted for Vietnam. So he, his brother had been a Marine, and he looked into the the Marine Reserves and decided that that's what he would do to continue his plan. He went into the Marine Reserves and he was 5'9", 160 pounds when he went into the Marine Reserves. Six months later, he came out, he was 6'1", 210. That's what I call miracle grow. Anyway, so now his plan is back on track because now he's, now he's a, filled out his, uh, his frame and he knew that he could he could really, he, he had a fastball now. And uh, so he decided that he would, what he would do to get Rod Dato's attention, he was going to have to go to a, uh, a junior college and pitch against, uh, you know, junior college competition. And he got himself into Fresno City College, his hometown there, Fresno. And Dato took notice because all of a sudden he's throwing 96 miles an hour now. So. That was his plan all through high school and and college, was to gradually get himself into a position where he would be a professional major league baseball player because that's what he always wanted to do. And then after his career, he got into broadcasting work. He did bro broadcasting for both the Mets and the Yankees. 
But he was never really satisfied with that because Seaver was a guy that he was he was just so smart and he always wanted to do something really creative with his life. Whether it was playing baseball and then after baseball, he needed something more than just being a broadcaster. Like he did like everything he did, he just dove into it. He bought all all these books, he read books and uh papers and magazine articles and everything else, everything he could do to learn ab- about the wine business and uh, the uh, the whole business with growing grapes and everything that went into it. I mean, he wound up making award-winning Cabernet. And so that's the way Siever went about everything he did in life. He always had a plan. And, of course, and inevitably all of his plans, because they were so carefully calculated, and because he was so determined, those plans always seemed to work out for him. Clearly, his fame and fortune came in large part because the Mets and the miracle season of 1969. We, we know how Seaver pitched. He won a Cy Young. He was great. But what was it that he brought to that team that it really lacked? Well, I think more than anything, he brought an attitude to the team. Uh, he had always been on winning teams all through Little League because he was the star player of the team, and he was and he was the pitcher who, as we all know, pitchers have the most control over wins and losses on teams. And he, because of this, uh, he arrived at the Mets uh, in 1967. And one thing that struck him when he got there was that the writers kept writing and talking about the the uh the Mets of the, the Casey Stengel Mets the amazing Mets so to speak and uh, and all the funny stories about how inept they were and and part of the reason for that was because Stengel was the manager and um you know when you're covering a losing team uh it's hard to write it's, it's hard to write about losing team losing losses day after day except that Casey made it all entertaining by making fun of his own team. Seaver saw this attitude, and this, and he didn't like it. And at one point, he went to Ron Swoboda, who was a fellow rookie on that team, and he said to him, he says, you know, Ronnie, I don't understand these writers. All they do is write about Casey's and Casey Stengel's awful Mets. He says, I don't, I don't want anything. I had nothing to do with that, and I don't want anything to do with that. And he, he basically told his other teammates that as well. And, you know, here's this brash rookie coming in there, and he's telling them, look, I don't want to hear about Marvin Throwberry and Rod Keneal, and I don't want to hear about the Masons. He says, I don't understand. They call the, them the Mason Mets because they were amazingly bad. Well, I want nothing to do with that. And he made it clear about that, and all of a sudden this rookie pitcher uh, comes – is coming in here and he's basically saying this is going to change i am not going to tolerate this kind of an attitude losing attitude around here and of course he led by example he won the national league rookie of the year award in 1967 and all of a sudden the mets who had never had a star player of any caliber uh have this young kid who was just he was almost immediately one of the top pitchers in the national league i want to jump ahead to uh what for me was my favorite story of the book, and it was when he was with the White Sox, and he had butted heads with a manager, Tony La Russa, who didn't give his pitchers a lot of 
rope to deal with when they got in trouble. There's his story he tell in the book when LaRusso comes to the mound and not only does Seaver tell LaRusso he's going to stay in the game, but he predicts what's going to happen next. Do you know the story I'm talking about? One of my favorite chapters in the book is the chapter on the White Sox. When Seaver goes to the White Sox, and in Tony LaRussa, he meets a whole new, different kind of cat as a manager. LaRussa was an innovator, and he was regarded at the time as as uh, as a whole new, modern type manager, and that he was always coming up with these different innovations and things like that, which Seaver thought was a little over the top, to say the least. And their relationship got off to a bad start in Seaver's very first start uh, with the White Sox when LaRusso took him out of the game in the fifth inning with runners on first and third. There was uh, one out, and there was um, he was losing the game by by only one run, and he couldn't believe it. LaRusso, here's LaRusso coming out to take him out of the game in the fifth inning, and uh, the next thing that happened was that he brought in this pitcher, Juan Agosto, a left-handed pitcher, and Agosto walks the first batter, and then he gives up a bases-clearing double, and the game is basically lost right there. Seaver watched this from the clubhouse, and he got dressed immediately, got in his car, and drove home. He, he was so disgusted. And the next day, the White Sox were in Milwaukee uh, playing the Brewers, and it was before the game, and the pitchers were in the outfield of shagging flies, and Maru- uh, St- Seaver is still steaming at La Russa. So La Russa goes out there, and, and Seaver says, why in the hell did you take me out of that game yesterday? What's the matter with you? And La Russa starts stammering, and he says, well, you know, it, it looked like you'd had a rough day. The weather was weather was tough on you, and, uh, you know, I thought maybe you'd had enough. And uh, it was a bunt situation. And if Augusto is a guy, he's like a cat off the mound, a left-hander. And I just thought it was a good situation, good time to take you out. Now Seaver's really steaming. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me you took me out of the game because you didn't think I could field my position? <laughs> So now LaRusso is really stammering for words. He says, well, um, uh, um, and Seaver says, do you realize that I'm 100 games over 500? If I went 0-20 for the next five years, I would still be over 500 as a pitcher. <laughs> and you're taking me out of the game. So LaRusso picked up the story for me in the book, and he told me, he says, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And he says, I, w- I will tell you this. That was the last time I ever did that. He was the only pitcher when I went out to the mound I would ask. But then he says, then he starts, then LaRusso told me this other story. There's a situation where Seavers, it's a one-run game, and Seavers, there's, there's a runner on third base, and it looked like Seaver was struggling a little bit, and there was a left-handed batter, a good left-handed batter coming up. And LaRusso goes to the mound, it's two outs in the inning, but there's a runner on third that could be the tying run. And LaRusso comes out, and ordinarily, you know, a left-handed batter, right-handed pitcher, he makes the move. And Seaver says, no, I got this guy. So LaRusso, remembering that whole thing in his very first start with with Seaver and knowing his new his new attitude with Seaver as far as waiting for him to make the decision, LaRusso turns around and he goes back to the dugout. But before he gets... To, before he gets back to the dugout, Seaver says, but just remember this, I'm going to fall behind in the count deliberately, 
and then I'm going to throw him a changeup, and he's going to pop the ball up to the third baseman. So LaRusa gets back into the dugout, and sure enough, Seaver falls behind in the count, 2-0. and The batter's at the plate. He's looking. He's leaning in. He's waiting for that fastball. LaRusa, Seaver throws him a changeup, and sure enough, he pops it up to the third baseman. Seaver walks off to the mound, and he just winks at LaRusa. That is great. I love that story. Bill, I could talk all day with you, but just one last question. There are a lot of Tom Seaver fans out there. A lot of them know a lot of stories about Seaver. Is there something you learned while working on the book that most people, Mets fans, might not know about? Well, I think the main thing that um, there's so many different incidents that happened in his career that are, are revealed for the first time in his book. Uh, the the great anecdote uh, in that same White Sox chapter about the uh, about the day he pitched without any signs uh, with the catcher. That's a long story, but I think the one aspect of this book that the readers don't know about is, uh, sadly, was his decline from the um, from the Lyme disease. And I trace this from the time I was out there in 2017 and he couldn't remember any of his highlights of his career. I will say this, the last chapter was a very uh, painful chapter for me to write because he was my friend and, but I felt it had to be written and, and the reader had to be informed as to exactly what happened to him and how it happened and how uh, it maybe could have been avoided uh, or at least, uh, to the point where he could have been with us a lot longer. And so the last chapter, it starts out being kind of a dark chapter, obviously. And my editor at Simon and Schuster said, are you going to be able to end this book, end this book on an upbeat note? Uh, because it's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be hard on the readers to see how what happened to this great man and this great pitcher, this great intellect. And I said, yeah, I will try to figure that out. And I think I was, I'm not going to tell you what the end of the book is, but uh, I think I did figure out a way to make it uh, have an upbeat ending uh, in what was really a, a tragic last few years. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we close out 2020 with a couple of books that tap into how we've all been feeling this year. Dark, disturbed, but still hopeful. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.